Today on The Joys of Binge Reading, a real historical fiction treat. Diana Giovinazzo and Antoinette's sister. Historical fiction bursting with intrigue, adventure and romance. Welcome to The Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series. So you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler. And on Binge Reading Today, Diana Giovinazzo with two historical feasts and two formidable women. Antoinette's sister is a tale of power, love, and the entwined lives of two sisters, both queens, during 18th century Europe's most volatile period, one will keep her head, the other will lose it. This is historical fiction at its most entertaining and informative. But before we get to that, news of two special historical fiction sales. The first one on Kobo finishes February 28th, so don't waste any time in getting in and having a look. I've got the first three books of the Of Golden Blood series in this sale, Kobo sale. The first three books, 25% off normal retail price. Take a look now. And then we're sharing in another great historical fiction sale on Book Funnel. Loads of other historical fiction books there, great quality historical fiction. I've got book five in the series, Unbridled Vengeance, in that Book Funnel sale. Now the links for both of those sales are in the show notes for this episode on thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you find them. Before we get on to Diana though, just let me say, if you enjoy this show, why not leave a comment online so others can find us too. But that's enough of our housekeeping. Here's Diana. Hello there, Diana, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. Look, you've written these two lovely books about forgotten women of history. Antoinette's Sister, which is the latest one and the one we'll be focusing on here today, but also The Women in Red, which got tremendous reviews when it was published. Both of them are these forgotten women. Tell us, you said that getting into genealogy and your own family history is what drew you into writing fiction. Tell us about how that happened. It was really interesting. I was actually having a conversation with my dad and we were discussing how my family ended up coming to the United States and the questions of how turned into well, why. Why were they leaving Italy? Why were they coming to California? Because there were just, there's a massive amount of Italians that left the country going to Australia, New Zealand, um, United States and all throughout South America. And my father was like, well, you should look at Anita Garibaldi and check out her story. I think you'd really like it. That might give you some answers. And so I did. I picked up a biography and I absolutely fell in love with her story and started digging into the Italian history and what was going on with unification and the country itself. And I just realized, okay, my genre that I need to be writing is historical fiction. And I just have this love of Italian history in and of itself. So I just kind of combined the two and started writing. Now, what 
years did it, did your family first go to the United States? The Calabrians came to the United States in 1912, and then the Sicilians came in 1915. Right. So it was um, Garibaldi was in the 1860s, wasn't he? Is that yes? Yeah. 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 So yeah. it was after that, obviously, but there was still so much turmoil, and then the after effects of unification, yes. what was going on yeah. in the South. Yeah. So many were leaving the South after unification. Sure. That that caused so much of what was going on. Yep. Sure. Just for people who aren't familiar with their Italian history, Giuseppe Garibaldi was the leader who had the credit of unifying all of the different Italian states into one modern nation status, as we might describe it. And you did a wonderful fictional life of Anita Garibaldi, his wife who had probably really been a lost person because Giuseppe was so prominent that she was his shadow, wasn't she? Yeah. Absolutely. And in this one, the Antoinette of the title is another amazing woman, almost notorious in history, Marie Antoinette, the tragic Queen of France. With what's going on with the English royal family at the moment, you realise how utterly amazing a bad press or, or just press sensationalism mm -hmm. can be. And one of the interesting things, actually, as a little aside to talking to so many historical fiction authors, is how there has been a wonderful rewriting of history of some of the women who got a bad press in their lifetime from their husbands, who were so much more famous. I'm thinking particularly of Napoleon, later have been started to be resurrected. And that's certainly the case with Marie Antoinette, because you present a much more sympathetic face for that queen than the one we've been mm -hmm. left with. Most people probably just think of let them eat cake as being her heartless response. So tell us a bit about these two sisters. These sisters, their relationship was so close when they were children. They were raised as twins. They were only a few years apart. I want to say it was like two or three years apart that they were born, but they were raised as twins and they looked so much alike, even into their adulthood, where after Marie Antoinette's death, there were courtiers from France who came to Italy. And when they saw Maria Carolina, there was one who actually fainted upon seeing her because she looked so much like her sister. Yes. And so they were so close. And my main character, Maria Carolina, had, was a troublemaker. And she did something that caused their mother to separate them. And they were so close, but that friendship was still very close after the, the sisters were always writing letters. She was always asking about her sister in letters to back home to the family. And so when I started digging into Marie Antoinette's life and her letters that she wrote to other people, I really got the sense of this depressed woman. And she even referred to herself as having the German melancholy. And having being so picked apart by the media and being basically torn apart were things whether she did it or not. I, I felt sorry for her and I created this sympathetic version of her that really only her sister would see and know. Yeah. They were both the daughters of the formidable Empress of Austria. That mm -hmm. lady bore 16 children. I think only about eight of them came to adulthood, didn't they? But yeah. she raised each of those ones that survived were more or less raised with an idea of monarchy in mind. They were just trained as 
royal courtiers right from mm-hmm. tiny babies. And she already had her eyes on what kingdom or duchy or baron they could marry, even when they were tiny. So they were not love matches. And this podcast is going out in next month and Valentine's month. So I thought it was particularly fun to focus on the romantic aspect of them. Tell us about Maria Carolina's marriage, for example. Oh, I, that marriage, that's such, that was such a fun relationship to write about. Ferdinand in of, of himself, I grew to love him as I get to write him. He was one of my absolute favorite characters to create and write about. And it wasn't a love match to begin with. In fact, she wasn't even meant to marry him. There were two other sisters before her that were supposed to marry Ferdinand. And interestingly, and this is where one of those what ifs about history of things had worked out certain ways, how things would change. She was intended to be the Queen of France. Maria Theresa had Maria Carolina set to marry the heir. And she would have been the one who would have to deal with all of those rebellions and the French Revolution and all of that that her sister had to deal with. But, you know, we also dealt with a pandemic here and over there in New Zealand as well. And she lost two sisters to smallpox. And she ended up being the default sister who had to marry him. And it was a duty. It was a duty-based relationship that she had to have. Yes. you know, that was, and that was something that in Maria Teresa's letters that I was able to kind of glean with the history and everything, where she wasn't even sure about the match. He had this reputation. I think that might be one of the questions. So I don't want to jump too much into the guns, but he had this reputation for being a nitwit and being childish, but she still had to place her daughter in a prominent royal family. That was still very important to her. Yes, that's right. So the actual physical marriage took place with her brother as mm-hmm. the proxy. So that she got married in Austria at, I think, 16, wasn't it? She was 16 yes. mm-hmm. with her brother as the proxy. And I think her brother was a rather handsome young man. And she'd already seen a, a miniature of Ferdinand of Sicily. And he had this mm-hmm. big nose that was very prominent and he was known for it. And took one yes. look at the miniature and thought, oh, no, I don't like him. <laughs> and then she more or less had to get on a coach and go to Sicily and meet him for the first time when she was already legally married to him. Mm-hmm. It's, it's such a crazy thought idea. And it's why sometimes with history, there's some things that you just can't make up. You really can't. And she had to go through with this marriage as vile as he was when he, and he wasn't that much older than her. He was like maybe 17 or 18 at the time. And so she was, she still had to go through all of this. She still had to perform her duties. That was the, one of the central questions I explored in the book was what does it mean to, for king and country? And what does that mean when you're a queen, when you have to abide by the will of the king? And you have this air that you have to do these things for your country. God, the ordained deity saying, hey, you've got to do this. This is this is your job. This is, I picked you to do this. And it's a lot, of a, bur- a lot of burden to put on somebody. Yes. Regardless of their age. So Ferdinand was a, a flippant and, and almost fey, that word F-E-Y, sort of slightly odd character. 
but you present him as a maturing and much more sympathetic man as he develops. And I think perhaps with Maria Carolina's influence, he develops a rather more humble uh, persona as, as, as they grow together, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to realize she had 17 children on her own. And she went beyond the Aaron Spare mentality where she could have said, I've had two boys, I'm done. But she continued going to bed with him and not let him just go off with his affairs, which he still had, but she still went to bed with him. And so there had to be something to that relationship. And I wanted to explore that. And as humans, even if we are immature, even as young adults, and we still carry some of that immaturity with us, but we're going to still grow. And there's going to be the people that are around us are still going to be influential on us. And in a lot of ways, I think historically from men does get a bad rap uh, by many historians that just write him off as being this idiot. But there's so much more to him as much as there's so much more to people. We're not just this one set idea of what a person should be or can be. We are complex creatures. And so is he. Yes. The likable side of him was that he, he did have a real love of the common man. Mm-hmm. And he did and like to go and pretend to not be king, didn't he? Yes. Yes. Those were his, that was something that historically he absolutely adored and did. Where none of his antics in the book, none of his lip treats, like where he would go and play chess with the old men by the sea. He, all of that was actually based on true history. None of that was made up. He did have that love of the common man. And that, I think pulling from that, the fact that he had this love of the people was something that I really pulled into his character. Yeah. And uh, the Empress, she gave her daughters rather interesting advice, motherly advice, about how to make their marriage work. And Charlotte took, passed that on to her own daughter. Could you tell us about that? It was rather wise, although very hard-headed advice. Yeah, if I can quote my own book properly, <laughs> it was in everything that you do and be, you are going to be Sicilian, but in your heart, you're still Austrian. Something along those lines. And that was something that she did actually write to Maria Carolina. That was a piece of advice that she had given to her. She loved to do her letter writing. And that was a letter that she had actually given to her on her wedding day that she read on her way to the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies. And I love that piece of advice. That was just such strong advice. And I wanted Maria Carolina to still bring that forward with her own children. Because when you have that advice that served you well when you were young, you want your daughters to succeed in these new roles that they end up having when they're adults. Yes. There was one that was a little bit more down to earth as well, where she said the most important thing was to get your husband to believe you loved him, even if you didn't. And that was something else that she had said that she had told her daughters that <laughs> men are fickle. Make sure you you cater to his needs. That's... <laughs> yeah. The letters that the sisters wrote to one another, the true letters, have vanished. I don't think, are there any of them still? Not as far as I know. 
And the book has been out for a year. So if somebody came across the letters and said, oh, hey, there are letters, I would love. I would love to see that. But yeah. as far as I know, they're not. I am pretty sure that the letters were burned, at least yes. on Maria Carolina's part, yeah. Yeah. Um, where you have in the story, she also has a Spanish coming in. They're trying to get to her letters. They're trying to get to think that she's up to something no good, which may or may not be the case. And so she wants to hide those letters, especially because it's her sister telling secrets to her. Yeah. From and France is under the immense turmoil at the time as well. Yes. Yes. Sure. So the book, each chapter pretty well is bracketed by their exchange of letters. So you had a great time recreating what the sisters might have said to one another. Yes. How did you approach that task? I tried to think of it. I have a sister as well. She's 12 years younger than me. And I wanted to frame it as how my sister and I would talk to each other, how, you know, my sister and I will, will tell each other things that we won't necessarily tell other people and or other, even other members of, in our own family. And so I want, I wanted to go that route. This is what, how sisters would talk. This is the, these are the letters that sisters would share with each other. And yeah. that's I, how I attacked it. Turning to The Woman in Red and Anita Garibaldi, tell us a little bit, give us a thumbnail sketch of her life, how she came to marry Giuseppe and what her role in his career was. Oh, gosh, a thumbnail. It's how can you create a thumbnail for a woman who is so fierce and so wonderful? Anita Garibaldi, she was raised as a gaucho. She was Brazilian. She was a tomboy who just didn't fit the mold. she ended up at the age of 14 having to marry a man, her mother, another marriage that she was forced into. And he was gone. And there was, again, rebellion in the country. There was a civil war that was brewing between the North and the South in Brazil. And Garibaldi had already been kicked out of Italy. He was on the run in France because he had stolen the ship. Because he was, he was a swashbuckler, debonair, missionary, not missionary, um, uh, mercenary. He was a mercenary. And so he comes to Laguna and the legend states that he saw this woman and she was on a balcony and he declared, Deber ser mia, she must be mine. And dove into the water and picked her up and they took off and lived happily ever after. And in actuality, she still had the stigma of being married, even though her husband was gone. And they had this torrid love affair. And she became a freedom fighter along with him. In fact, she was the one who taught him how to ride horses. She taught him how to live like a gaucho and get involved in the guerrilla fighting as he did. And so she was very much his confidant and everything. And she, unfortunately, in a lot of ways, has become a footnote in his story. Mm. which is really unfair and unfortunate to her. Mm. But she was just this larger-than-life woman who, decades after his her death, he still referred to her as the queen of his soul. So it was this epic love story that I really wanted to capture. Yes. How did you carry out the research for these two books? A lot of books, a lot of historical biographies was what I used with Anita 
it was a little frustrating because there there's this element when it comes to historical women where we mean like Marie Antoinette and Marie Carolina, I knew exactly what she did on a daily basis. Marie Antoinette, you can go and look up exactly what she wore and when. That's that's how much information you have on these women. And with an, Anita Garibaldi, who was a poor woman, there's nothing. Mm. And so I had to use what I could from Garibaldi's journals, from the biographies of various people. Anita couldn't read or write. And so her story was created by, or, or was told by a, a woman who had interviewed her. They like sat and cha- chatted over coffee and then she would go home and she would write down everything. So she kept the journal of what Anita had said and done up until a certain point. And then I actually had to go and explore the culture of that specific time period and what women during that time period would be doing. So I had to piece together this woman from what little historical record I could get and what women of that time period in Brazil would be doing. Yeah. You mentioned on your website, actually, that did just remind me that you're a passionate traveler and yes. you got stuck at home with COVID when you were writing the Antoinette sister book. You didn't even get a chance to go to the kingdom of the two Sicilies. Tell us about that frustration. <laughs> oh, it was, it was so awful for somebody who I actually, in, in 2020, I had a trip to Italy that I was going to be taking the first time in years that I had been able to go back to Italy and everything got canceled. And so I was here in this room in my office and basically it was books and Google Maps. Google Maps was amazing. It's an amazing tool for those who can't write. And let's also look at the fact that travel can also be something for those who have who can benefit from it, who can actually afford to travel because travel, let's face it, can be expensive. You save up for years just to go on a trip. And sometimes you don't necessarily have the funds to travel. And Google Maps was amazing for me. I was able to, I call a little dude. I know that there is a name. We discussed it on my podcast once and I completely blocked out what his name was because he forever will be little dude to me. And I would pick him up and I, I could place him on a road or in a palace. So Concerta, especially once a palace, I based so much of the story on because I could actually walk through the palace and give myself my own tour. And you can still look up what the plans are, the blueprints of the palace were. And when it came to the Austrian palaces, I would do something similar. The, the palaces that I could research from home were the palaces that I put in the books because I could get a more accurate prescription of those palaces based on what I was only able to do. Yes. Yeah. We've mentioned about history being written by those who conquer or those who've got access to media. Um, were you aware of that? Sadly, Charlotte and Ferdinand lost their kingdom of the two Sicilies. Na- mm-hmm. Napoleon did come down through Europe and basically destroy their reign, just like he, well, not him, but his, mm-hmm. as a successor of the revolution, they destroyed Marie Antoinette. And I've become aware from other books that we've talked about on the show that Napoleon, when he sat on his island of St. Helena, he very much was aware 
of what sort of version of history he wanted to leave about himself. He was still wanting to make sure that he came out of it really well. Tell us a bit about that last phase of their lives when Napoleon invaded. Oh, Napoleon was such a narcissist. <laughs> you can see looking back at history now, like, yeah, he crafted this uh, narrative for himself, but really he was one of history's biggest dirtbags. That was such a scary time for them because France was so meddlesome and they talk about the French Revolution and it wasn't a revolution that was contained within France. They were spreading anarchy, which was so terrifying for the rest of the Italian peninsula, particularly because they went into the peninsula and they were taking whatever they wanted from not only nobility, but from the common men as well. And when that started happening, she was, of course, getting the letters from her family who were already, you know, set as nobility in the north. And she was also getting a lot of refugees from France and from northern Italy. And so it was very similar to issues that we've discussed in our own country about these refugees coming in. What's, what are they going to bring with them? Are they going to be terrorists? Because terrorism was first coined and created during the French Revolution. And so it was terrifying for her and for her family. And she grew up on this idea that you were chosen by God to rule. And she and her brother Leopold, they both tried to be these enlightened rulers. But that didn't necessarily work. I don't think monarchy really works. And that's something that I've, I've actually, when I've talked to people in other conversations, in writing this book, I've become more of a proponent for democratic processes, of republican processes, where you, the people have the right to rule on more uh, along lines of like Garibaldi and Anita for freedom that I am about Maria Carolina's yes. about the role of ruling. And a monarchy doesn't necessarily work with enlightenment. Those two kind of crash. They don't really go together. And so you see all of that and you see how, especially towards the end of her life, things are falling apart. And she's trying to hold on and she is not really relevant, even with her own kingdom, within her own family. And so it starts to really crumble. And some of the stuff I didn't get into in the book because there was a lot of back and forth, which doesn't make for good writing when you're trying to create this story. And I have a having a chapter where Maria Carolina goes to Austria and then Maria Carolina comes back to the kingdom of the Sicilies, and then she goes back to Austria. Going back and forth for several chapters just makes for a really long book where you're yeah. not really yeah. having a lot yeah. of plot going on. Yeah. And so there, there is a point in this, in the history of the Kingdom of Sicily is where they become the Parthenon or, yeah, Parthenon or Parthenian Republic. And that republic was held by Marat, who was Napoleon's brother-in-law, who did awful things to the people of the Kingdom of the Sicilies. There was a lot of abuses happening because of him. And then after that all fell apart, they were able to get it back. But it was still, she was still devoted to people, still devoted to them. Yeah, I must admit, I did do a little Wikipedia after I'd read the book. And I see that <laughs> after she died, Ferdinand married very quickly after she mm -hmm. died. And that made me feel a bit sad as well. It seemed like towards the end of their lives, 
they did lose contact a little bit. At one stage, she vowed she wasn't going to have anything more to do with them until they got their kingdom back or something like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think he might have had a, an affair with one of her ladies-in-waiting. Was mm-hmm. she the woman that he finally married after she died? No, he ended up marrying an actress. Uh, and oh. it was one that the, the royal family was not fond of. And that's when he married her. He ended up abdicating the throne and her son coming in. Ah. But he was carrying on with her before their marriage had actually dissolved. She had gone to Austria and started living in Austria. And she had, for a while, had a townhouse in one of the palaces outside of Naples. So she had already stepped back from the royal life. Okay. But had been pretty much retired. Yes. And so he had his, his mistress. And married her as soon as she died, yeah. Oh, yes. Um, has the book found a market in Italy? Has it been translated into Italian? The one in Red has. The one in Red, read Astoria Dianita as the Italian translation. And I absolutely love the translation and the translator and the process of that. And we were in Italy this past September. And it was really exciting to go to an Italian bookstore and find my book on the shelves in Rome. That was an experience that I'll never forget. That's fantastic. Do you read and write Italian yourself? I, yes, I, I've been studying Italian for about three, almost four years now. Mm-hmm. I've been saying I'm starting to read more, but it's still such a process because it's such a gorgeous language and it's still very complex. And so I'm still, I'm just venturing into reading books that haven't been translated into English yet. And I'm speaking a little better than I, I used to. <laughs> But I come from a generation, I'm third generation Italian. So by the time I came around, nobody was teaching any of us any of proper Italian. I only knew the swear words growing up. (laughs) During my father's generation and my grandparents' generation, there was this push that you had to speak English. Mm. This very big push. And I think a lot of it comes from that World War II generation and carrying that on. Yeah. That you've got to speak uh, speak English and you've got to assimilate to Americanism. And so I think I, my generation ended up losing a lot of the Italian culture because of that. Turning from your books to your wider career, did the things that you did before you started writing help feed into your writing career? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. The podcast that I do with one of my best friends, One Woman in Words, we had sitting down and talking with authors. And you can tell where we are in our own writing journeys. Because sometimes certain things, aspects of books will will pop out to us. Like if you're writing multiple perspectives and how did you set the setting? And we'll ask the author, how did you do these things? And we'll have these conversations with them about that. And so that was very helpful. And then there's also being able to make friends with other authors and podcasters because you, there's a great podcasting community. And I'm, as I'm sure you know as well. And before being a writer, I was also a paralegal. And so research is my oh, jam. Right. I love yeah. to research. Yeah. Yeah. That's all one of my favorite things. So I just shifted my research from legal stuff to, to history. And Yeah, that's great. Yes, talking about the podcast, it is called Wine, Women and Writing, as you mentioned. How did you get going on that? This is what happens when you're best friends with somebody. Michelle called me up and she was like, hey, I'm going to start a podcast. It's a task I've got to do through school. 
and it's going to be called Blind Women Awards and you're going to do it with me. And I was like, I have absolutely no idea how to do a podcast. And she was like, neither do I. This is going to be fun. And, <laughs> and that's how we got started. We had no idea what we were doing. And about maybe six months or so, we started inviting authors on the show with us. And then eventually we got a format. We got an idea of how to do it. And we've been doing it for almost six years now. Wow. Yeah, that's great. And do you do a lot of historical fiction on that show? We do a mix. I think that's one of the benefits of the podcast is that it forces me to read everything, just my own genre. Michelle is writing his fantasy. So we'll get fantasy authors on, we'll get romance authors on. It's a really healthy mix of different books. Yeah. Yeah. So your advice to people that might be just starting out in a writing career from what you've heard from other writers and your own experience, what do people say is the best way to approach it? Um, well, for me, the advice I always give to people who want to be writers is to read everything. That's the primary advice. Read everything from the back of shampoo bottles to the classics. Read everything because that's the best teacher when it comes to writing is to learn from what others have written and done and seeing it on a page before you and then just you've got to have that tenacity especially if you're seeking a traditional publishing role or a traditionally published book you've got to have that tenacity to be able to deal with agents to get an agent and then to be able to deal with reviews and all of that you you've got to be able to thicken up before dealing with all of that because you're going to get a lot of rejections would you advise people to seek traditional publishing or would you suggest going indie? Have you got any preferences there? I think it all depends upon what you want for the book and what you want for yourself. For me, looking at when I was starting to pitch The Woman in Red, when you go indie, you're having to do, there's a lot of work that you have to do for yourself where you're doing, you still do a lot of marketing either way, both traditional and indie, but distribution and cover design and all of the mechanics that not a traditional publisher would handle. Yeah. You're doing that if you're in doing indie and if you don't want to have to control that, if you're okay with somebody saying, no, we're going to change the title of your book. Or we're going to choose this book cover. And if you're not, if you're okay with that, then yeah, traditional publishing is good because traditional publishing can also get you more in, in the door when it comes to distribution. Yes. Distribution is usually yeah. the big yes. thing. And so it just depends on you and what you want for your book. Yes. Looking back now over your writing career, if this one thing you could change, what would it be? Not to stress so much. <laughs> I could tell past Diana in 2017, 2018, Diana, she's just about to pitch her book. Don't stress too much because it'll happen. I think that's the only thing. We put so much on ourselves to be perfectionists when it comes to our writing, when it comes to just working nonstop and just stressing about whether or not this is going to happen. It, you have to take a step back and be like, okay, it's going to happen. Have faith, it's going to happen. Then, you know, believe in it and you can manifest it. 
And I think that's really, you sometimes get lost when you're in the trenches of trying to get it to happen. Yeah. Otherwise, the way things worked out, I wouldn't change anything, anything at all. It's wonderful. What have you got on your desk now for the next 12 months? What are you looking at doing? I don't have anything specific. I'm working on some pitches uh, that I'm going to be giving to my agent. And I have this nice little lull and I am doing a lot of reading. I've got a lot of reading for the podcast. I've got to catch up on and get ahead of and a lot of my old personal reading that I want to read. Yeah, that's great. But you will be sticking with historical fiction. You've got some ideas in mind for how you'd like to go. Yes, absolutely. I have some ideas in mind. I love historical fiction. Uh, So many of us have fallen into historical fiction, either based on genealogy or how many of us have actually been like, and not until we started writing historical fiction, I realized, hey, this was my favorite genre even before I started thinking that, hey, I could write this. And so we've all kind of, those, so many of us have bumped into this genre and I love the genre. There are so many fantastic books out there mm. that I am going to stick with it. This is my jam. This is what I love. And this is what I'm going to keep writing until the day I die. And I tend to die with a pen in my hand. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> now, I'm sure that I know the answer to this question already, but do you enjoy hearing from your listeners? And where can, and your readers, and where can they find you online? Oh, I absolutely love Authors Live on Adoration. And that's what we, <laughs> so please, if you love the book, please let me know. I absolutely love to hear from readers. And at my website, you can contact me directly from that. And online, Diana G. Author. It's the same handle, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and even TikTok. Wonderful. And you're doing TikTok? Yes, mostly. I'm mostly on Instagram. That's the one that you see most of me on there. But I do some TikTok. Right now, I'm building a little book insert that looks like a little bookstore. So that's most of my TikTok right now is me building. (laughs) Diana, it's been wonderful talking. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. Binge reading is going fortnightly this year, as I've already mentioned, but for those of you who missed that announcement, but we're having the occasional bonus encore show now and then. The idea is to allow me more time to write my own books, and this month we're going to have a bonus episode for Valentine's Month. Roselle Lim returns with another delightful rom-com with a magical edge. That's Roselle Lim and Sophie Goh's Lonely Hearts Club. That'll be on February the 28th. Sophie Goh's matchmaking skills are put to the test as she learns the depths of loneliness, heartbreak and love by attempting to make the hardest matches of all. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. Stay with us, won't you? And if you've enjoyed the show, why not leave your comments so that others can find us too? And happy reading. Happy reading.